A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Trish, I have another transport-related brain fog incident to bring to you today. Is this a bike, a car, a train, an aeroplane? Yes, it was my helicopter. <laughs> no, you know I don't really like cars and I will do anything to avoid getting into our car. So I don't drive much, but I had to take Mabel, my uh, 12-year-old. I had to collect her. So I go out, I'm in the road pressing the alarm thing, thinking, why the hell is this not opening? You mean the key fob? The car alarm, the key fob thing, yes. I'm just pressing this thing. Nothing's happening. No alarm's going off. Nothing's opening. And I try the door and then I try the tailgate door because I think, oh, we've got a problem with our tailgate. Maybe it's that causing the thing. I try the front. I walk all around it. I thought, oh, for God's sake, I'm going to be really late now. I'll go back into the house and I'll have to get an Uber or something like that. So I walk across the road and I think, oh, look, someone else has got one of these as well, one of a car like ours. And I pause for the moment. <laughs> I see where this is going. <laughs> Actually, that's our car. I've been trying to get into someone else's car. But worse, Trish. Yes. Our car is a significantly different colour. Oh, no. So the brain fog, even though I'm cleaning my teeth with my left hand and doing all that stuff... Did it not have, because you've got your signature roof box that you have on the car permanently. I mean, that's quite identifiable. And it's peeling and it's half purple, our signature roof box. I was going to say it's a little bit shabby. It's a bit shabby, well worn. Yeah, you would think, wouldn't you? But it's a really weird thing the brain does. It was just, it's a similar shape. It was a, It's grey, the one I was trying to get into, and ours is a black. It's a properly different colour. Not like I just went for an absolutely identical car. It was a different car I tried to get in. What's going on, Trish? Am I getting worse? I don't know. But the neighbourhood watch weren't out to get you, though, were they? So that's a good thing. Didn't report you to the police. Looney trying to <laughs> steal a car. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Lorraine Candy. And I'm Trish Halpin. If you're living in a hormonal hothouse, feeling a bit overwhelmed and in need of some positive, uplifting and comforting guidance on how to lead a more magnificent midlife, then this is the show for you. We chat to celebrities and experts on all things midlife, from menopause and perimenopause to parenting teens, via fashion, beauty, wellness, nutrition, fitness careers, relationships, caring for elderly relatives and your finances. Yes, we are experts and famous guests all the questions you need answered to have a happier, healthier and more harmonious second act. Trish, it's been a bit of a week for you. Um, well, a bit of a week for your poor old dad. Um, how is he doing and how are you doing? Well, thank you for asking. I'm glad to report that he's on the mend. Uh, I had to do a dash to Spain as the, the poor chap fell ill over there while on holiday and ended up in hospital for for over a week. And of course, I wanted to see him and also need to support my, my stepmum, who was having to deal with all sorts of logistical stuff on her own. It's so hard dealing with this stuff when something like this happens when you're away from home and you don't speak the lingo, you know, you don't know what's going on. It's quite scary. 
It's the sandwich generation, isn't it? One of the other things that adds to our overwhelm, our aging parents, because they do become a bit of a worry and you sort of have to drop everything. I mean, my dad's had several half stacks down in Cornwall and you have to just sort of think, you know, tomorrow I've got to go and do that. It's all slightly in the back of your mind, isn't it? You might need to cancel things at the last minute. I was a bit worried about you too, Trish, though, because <laughs> you are quite sensitive. We have talked about what a sensitive person you are and how overwhelmed you get by noise and smells. I mean, I've been on the tube with you, which is fraught with all sorts of worries. Too many people. Oh. I mean, I had to talk you down over the WhatsApp, didn't I, about your little plane journey to Spain. It was your worst possible nightmare, wasn't it? Well, I think it was really because it was very early, Saturday morning flight to Alicante. And I only booked it the day before. I had to be at the airport by 5am. So there's a lot of logistics, right, and stuff to get your head around uh, with that going on. But it was all going really well. Got there, got on the plane, everything going very smoothly. And then uh, a stag do got on. A stag do and sat all around me, 10 noisy, giant, raying men sitting all I'm surprised you didn't go into some kind of anaphylactic shock-like <laughs> thing with all those noises and smells and stuff like that. Exactly. What happened? How did you get your little mind out of that place? Did you go to your happy place? I did. I was very good. I did some breathing. I prepped myself. I knew there was this was going to be a bit of an ordeal, coughing, shouting, snoring. Some of them were asleep already, boozing that would no doubt be happening over the, the next two and a half hours. But I had my headphones. Uh, I thought, I'm going to go to my comfort zone. I've got my Archers podcast. <laughs> I've got Meryl Streep reading the new Anne Patchett book. God. Enough to put you into a coma, that lot, Trish. But then the groom arrived. Asked to arrive. Obviously, a lot of roaring when he got on the plane. What upset me most, though, Lorraine, I could deal with all of that, but what upset me most was what he was wearing. So he had, I have to describe this to you in all its unitard. Oh, my God, worse. So he had a white baseball cap on with a veil attached to the back of it and a pink high-vis jacket. And on the back of the high-vis jacket was like a little male and female, like a computer game characters. And uh, she was smiling and he was looking really grumpy and sad. It said, uh, game over, written underneath it. The baseball cap, when he turned round, I'm not even sure I can say, I'm going to say it. It's quite traumatic for me to say this. The baseball cap on the front in huge lettering said, same vagina forever. Oh my God. He means vulva anyway, idiot. Same vagina forever. Women were against marriage in olden times. They only had to get married because of property. It wasn't something we came up with. It was something men came up with in the first place, for God's sake. Yes. It was very upsetting. But what upset me as well was everybody was laughing and patting him on the back and the stewardesses and the all of that. And I just thought, is nobody else finding this really? offensive. Well, also, why would you marry a man like that, for God's sake, in 2023? You'd want to take that cap and shove it up, you know, wouldn't you? Is that what Militant would have done, your alter ego? What would she have done? Militant would get quite physically aggressive about that whole situation. There'd be, I mean, it just doesn't make sense to be publicly in the era of Me Too. And I mean, I know one can say women are taking it all too seriously. But for years, they've been saying to us, it's just a laugh, smile, love. Yeah. Banter. Bants. Yeah. Bants. It's just continually terrible. Marion was quiet. That's my alter ego, my prudish alter ego. She was seething in her window seat, giving them filthy, snooty looks. I would have asked for her the 
wife-to-be's address and sent her quite a long note about what was wrong with the picture and how there are much, much better men out there than this one. Yes, there must be. And maybe he was railroaded into by his friends because it's often the friends who buy all the crap. I don't take that. You don't want somebody with friends like that. Anyway, anyway, onwards. You're on your little plane, yes. I'm going to change the subject now. Different direction, but connected to Militan. Because you, you know those uh, new shoes I bought the other week? First new pair of shoes in ages, a bit wintry shoes. Those lovely little Grensons, the, the yes. black lace-ups. They're sort of a DM and... Um, Brothel creeper. Can I yes. say that now? I don't mm. know. That, oh, you yes. know that little... yeah. <laughs> I, I did admire them, but obviously I can't wear any shoes like that because I've got size eight hoofs and I look like Ronald McDonald's in clown shoes. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm quite pleased with them. Like, I wore them around to my friend Ruth's house and she said, oh, you've got some militant shoes. Oh, my shoes. It's like your shoes. Which made me wonder what a sort of judgy, passive, aggressive Marion shoe would be. Driving loafer. Oh, car shoe. Car shoe, driving loafer, sensible. Sensible shoe. Now, while we're talking about footwear, there is a joy that I have to bring to you on this podcast. Uh, And this is the joy of the podcast. We can go from ageing parents to stag do sexism and shoes. From brain fog and back to brain fog. Yes. Did you see Belinda's post on the Facebook group? It was a photo of her wearing two different white trainers and she'd written, mortified to arrive at work with different shoes on. And I'm straight to the theatre this evening. I think what was a bit problematic, because if it had just been two white trainers, but it was actually one of them was white and the other was more creamy, I would say, and that was probably the problem. Trust Marion to point that out, <laughs> the specific <laughs> difference between them. Yeah, but we've had lots of comments after that on the thread about putting on different coloured shoes and other fashion faux pas. Um, I love this one from Jill who says, I managed to go away for a weekend a few years ago with only a pair of walking boots, was staying in a lovely small hotel with a great restaurant, decided to go to dinner barefoot and explained to the staff. They found it hilarious but used a tablecloth to hide my feet. No one wants to see anyone's feet while they're eating, do they? I don't know. Exactly. Exactly. But that was yeah, that sounds like a good solution to that particularly uh, horrific situation. Sarah made me laugh because she posted, my aunt turned up to my wedding in slippers. <laughs> and meanwhile, Christine wrote, I went to a family christening party not long ago and three hours in realised I'd forgotten to put on a bra, <laughs> which I've actually done that as well. I don't know what's going on with Laura um, when she did this. She says on the Facebook group, I've gone out with a coat hanger still in my coat before. (laughs) I had short hair and the silver hook was on show. I just didn't realise I spent the evening with my coat on and the hook showing. It was a leather jacket, slightly baggy, and it was set back so it didn't poke against my head. How weird is that? Oh, well, at least she wasn't uncomfortable. I'm not sure how you couldn't feel the coat <laughs> in this situation. I think women sometimes are in such a rush, aren't they? They just are getting on with things and they just don't notice all the other stuff because they've got so much to do. Yes. I mean, that's kind of on a par with not recognising your own car as well, I think, isn't it? Yes. Busy, busy, busy. <laughs> but these are these are all the kind of brain foggy midlife incidents that could happen in the brilliant new book by this week's special guest, the author... Nina Stibby, who will be joining us shortly. I think everyone will know Nina from her book called Love Nina, about her time working as a nanny, which was made into a TV show a few years ago, starring 
Helena Bonham Carter. And Nina is here today to talk about the book, which is actually her diary of a year she spent living in London after she moved there alone, actually with her dog, uh, moved away from her home of 20 years and her husband left them behind in Cornwall. It's really funny and fascinating and uh, features lots of her brilliant and often famous literary friends. A lot of, uh, shall we say, name dropping, name dropping in the book, genuine name dropping. I've been genuine name dropping. What are you speaking of? <laughs> uh, after we've talked to Nina, we're going to be talking about something else, which is very close to my heart, aren't we, Trish? We're going to be talking about cold and breathing in our How to Win at Midlife section. And um, that's not a headline or a cover line I ever thought I would write when I was working at Elle magazine. Yes. But we've got some really good stuff to tell you. And these are tips that we're going to give you because we do like to be practical. They're going to set you up for those long, dark winter days ahead and nurture your immune system. Have you done your icy blast in the shower this morning, Trish? Little pink cheeks. Yes, I have, Lorraine. I'm raring to go, so I think we should probably meet Nina. Our guest today has done something many midlifers dream about. After a hugely successful decade as a new writer, but one in which she says the menopause almost derailed her. She packed her bags and her cockapoo and headed off on a year-long sabbatical. The award-winning best-selling author Nina Stibby waved goodbye to her partner and her Cornish home of 20 years, where she'd raised her son and daughter to come and live in North London alone, renting a room from a friend. Here, she took stock of life after her transformative 50s. Would she return to the country for the next chapter or start over again on her own in the capital? It's time to find out why one of our most beloved comic writers became a 60-year-old runaway. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife, Nina. Thank you very much for having me. It's very lovely to have you here, especially immediately after reading your wonderful new book. So you have written six best-selling and award-winning books, and you wrote them in your 50s. Uh, they started with the memoir Love, Nina in 2013. And your latest book, Went to London, Took the Dog, is a thought-provoking, beautifully composed diary of your year in London alone with your cockapoo Peggy. Can you explain to our listeners what led to you running away, possibly forever, it could not be denied, as you wrote in the book? What led to me leaving in 2022 was that I'd moved to Cornwall with my partner, with our tiny children in 2002. And the plan was to live in Cornwall for a bit and then to get back to London in time for primary school. But we, we didn't make it back because we couldn't afford it. And so we stayed in Cornwall, which was Lovely, undeniably, really, really lovely. But my closest friends and most of my family live in London or close to London. So I did always feel a bit out on a limb. I mean, you know Cornwall, Lorraine. It's gorgeous. It's lovely. What a wonderful life. It's separate though, isn't it? It does feel separate. And I think once the kids had left and they all left my daughter left just before COVID in 2019 and then my son left sort of halfway through it all and they both went to London for the reasons that we all love London, they went there. And I I couldn't quite make sense of my life anymore. I, I didn't consciously know that I felt like that, but I think I, I, I was struggling a bit. And I long planned to have a, a stay in London. I'd get an Airbnb 
and I'd have a few months and that would work for me. I'd see family and friends and and my kids and, you know, do work things because, as you just said, for the last 10 years, I've been a published writer and I've needed to be in London a lot. But that didn't work because I just couldn't afford it. An Airbnb for a couple of months in London is an absolute no. So it had been in my head as something I could do and it, and it didn't work. And then in 2022, at the beginning of the year, I went to a publishing party uh, with Penguin, my publisher, and um, I bumped into a friend there who I share an editor with. And he said he was moving house. I didn't say, where are you going? I said, where have you been? I don't know why I said that. And he said, I've been lodging with this writer called Deborah Mogark, who I, I don't know her, but I know of her. I mean, we all know of her. We all know Deborah and Lottie. We all yeah. know Debbie. Yeah. Uh, and actually, because I think because we weren't friends, it made it easier for me to think, hmm, does she want another lodger? Maybe I could go there. Maybe that's the, the answer. And in fact, it was the answer. So I then packed up and went and did this time away in London that I'd sort of always thought I was going to do. But this was a bit different to the thing I'd got in, in my head because it was obviously, it could be longer than just a couple of months. I mean, Debbie said, you know, come for as long as you like, but, you know, up to a year is fine. And so I set off not really knowing what it was going to, how long it was going to be, what it was going to be. So it was all a bit bit of an adventure, really. As midlife women, we're often in the middle of a whole world of, you know, parents, kids, friends. We're doing it all right. We're sorting everybody else out. And the idea of extricating yourself from that in a certain way or running away from it, they like to have sort of views and opinions on the, on these things. What sort of reaction did you get? Lots of different reactions. Women weren't very surprised that I'd done it, given that the opportunity had arisen. You know, when I explained, I said, suddenly this lodgings for, you know, a peppercorn rent, a garden, dog friendly in Camden. They were, most of my women friends were like, yeah, I mean, of course. What was interesting to me was that women seemed to be very envious. A lot of women were like, oh gosh, I wish I, wish I had that opportunity. And my men friends, my heterosexual men friends, assumed there was someone else involved, absolutely would not believe that I had just walked away from my marriage to a perfectly nice person. You know, there was no nothing horrible or evil going on. I just had decided it's time to have a, a new episode, a new chapter. And so maybe people are thinking bad things about me, but nobody said anything awful to my face um, but there has been a bit of, um, come on, who who is it? Who is he? Been a bit of that. But from men, I mean, this is a, I'm being, I'm sort of making a massive generalisation here, but I know women that have left families for basically a garden and a place to take their dog and have a new adventure. I don't know any men that have done that. They tend to do it for sex. Do you think that's true? I think that is true. I mean, I, th- I think that's a kind of also a little bit what, they do what society sort of expects in midlife as well. It's a kind of much written about midlife crisis, isn't it? So you've talked, um, we're not going to delve into your private life because you've covered that in your book. Um, and you did come to London without your husband. Or skillfully not covered it, Lorraine. <laughs> it's very skillfully written, very skillfully written. <laughs> so you came your, on your own. What did you learn 
about yourself after all that time with someone else? Because being on your own, alone in an, in a city, you know the city, but it's quite a big thing. So what did you learn that you can pass on to our listeners about yourself? So many things. First of all, I have never lived alone before, ever. I have lots of siblings, eight altogether from different marriages. I've, I've never spent, I've hardly spent a night on my own. Um, so that was a huge shock that I was on my own with myself. And I can't think of a polite way of saying it or even a, a correct way of saying it. I, I felt a lot of the time mental on my own. Losing your mind. Yeah, just there's just me and I'm not performing for anyone or talking to anyone or it was it was hard at times, very hard at times. So that was the first thing that was quite shocking. You're sort of out of context, aren't you, of anything? So what's the point of you? Well put. You know, what am I doing? And I, the first few nights and, you know, when I moved in, again, I didn't know Debbie at all. I mean, I, I'd met her sort of 40 years ago, briefly a few times, and uh, she went off to her life that she she has another house in Kent that she spends quite a bit of time in. And um, I, I just was thinking, what am I doing here? You know, thank God I had the dog. It's very brave, isn't it? What do you think would have happened if you hadn't done it? You hadn't scratched that itch. This is the interesting thing to me. If I'd had to go and rent a flat and sign a contract and make a decision about separating myself, you know, with a clean break at that time, I wouldn't have done it. So isn't that terrifying? <laughs> so um, what else did I learn? I, I, I learned that, that I'm not really yet grown up because I've always had an adult in the room with me. I've had my very assertive older sister, Victoria, who absolutely has been the boss of me for, since I was born. I love and, her. And I've had my friend Stella, who's, you know, really, I'm, I'm very attracted to very strong bossy people. And I use bossy for both men and women, so I'm not being uh, mean. I'm very attracted to them because I then don't have to ever read a map or make a decision. So I was alone and suddenly had to grow up. And that was that was horrible. And I still haven't quite finished that process, but I'm getting better at making decisions for me. I mean, it's so funny, the book, but it's also incredibly moving. And it, I mean, it so resonates with midlife women, I think, because that, that's the story you're telling. And you talk a bit about your menopause journey, which you started in your early 50s, which was a little bit later, I guess. And it was particularly destabilizing for you. Now, you're 62 now. And your sister, Victoria, really struggled as well with her menopause, didn't she? She's a year older than you. Talk us through what you went through, because I think still for this generation, it's a bit of a shock, isn't it? It can be. I know you you know a lot uh, about my mum and my upbringing with my mum and that she was very frank and candid and she was a single mum for a lot of our childhood. And we knew what was going on in her life. She was a very young mum. She'd had four us four kids by the time she was 25 or 26. And she shared everything with us. We knew everything. We knew every abortion, every boyfriend, every horrible exploitative situation, the joys and the lows. It was, it, we knew her very, very well. And I remember once throwing away an old mattress of hers and seeing it without the covers on it and seeing it covered in awful stains and saying, oh, my gosh, what, you know, I must have been about eight or nine and saying, what, 
you know, what, what's all that? And she said, oh, God, that's just blood. And I was just stunned by it. And, and then she explained everything. So, Lorraine, the reason I tell you that is she never said a word about menopause. We knew everything about her. And she's really open and, you know, there's nothing I wouldn't tell her. And I thought there was nothing she wouldn't tell me. So that's the context that nobody said anything. But I do remember a few years before I uh, started in perimenopause, hearing a radio programme and it was Jenny Eclair and she sounded sad and bleak. And I thought, gosh, she sounds really sad. And normally she's really funny and engaging, but this is a bit heartbreaking. And she was talking about menopause and I'd never heard it talked about until I heard that. And I sort of, that went in my head. And thank God I did hear that because I remember Vic telling me, my older sister telling me that she she had this thing, for some reason it's called hag riding. Have you heard of this? I've heard of it, yeah, but explain it to the listeners, yeah. Because I've had it. It's horrific. So hag riding is where you get stuck in a dream. You can't come out of the dream and you're stuck in it. And I don't know why it's called hag riding. I should have looked it up. But you you get stuck in a horrible dream and you know you're dreaming, but you can't wake up and it's terrifying. And it's a symptom. I don't think it's a very common symptom, but it's a symptom of menopause and, in fact, hormonal stuff. And she was having this. And she was having a horrible time and she was having such terrible hot flushes that she said when she felt them starting, she, she, she felt them starting in the core in her middle and she'd feel these coming and she would, she said, I, 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 my brain thought I was going to die. So she went on HRT and I said, Vic, don't go on HRT. It's really bad for you. And she said, I don't care. I'd, I'd, I'd rather die early than go through this. So I heard it a couple of years before I went through it from Vic, and it was horrible. My experience wasn't quite the same as that, but my thing was that I'd wake up at night and feel bleak. And the best word I can describe is demented. I'd think I could hear the roof falling off, and I wouldn't know where I was. And so very quickly, knowing that Vic had had a horrible time, I spent my holiday money on a sofa bed to put in our family little study that we've got so that I'd have somewhere to go because I couldn't sort of wake up and turn all the lights on and put on some music or read a book because that would disturb my partner. Yeah, I'd, I got this uh, sofa bed and thank goodness I did because I would then just go in there. I'd go and get a bowl of cornflakes and just sort of slap myself around the face and say, you know, you're Nina, it's okay, you're you, don't worry. So that was horrible. It didn't last very long, but it was it was horrible and felt spooky. It felt sort of I didn't I wasn't me. Did you get any help or any treatment? No, I I thought I thought we had to tough it out. I'd been told by my mum, by my granny, whenever it was you know when finally it was mentioned, and by my um, mother-in-law. You know, my mother-in-law actually said to me, "Well, I went on H- HRT and it gave me breast cancer." So I was very kind, you mustn't do it, you must tough it out, tough it out, tough it out. So I didn't, I didn't, I just toughed it out. And um, thankfully, it didn't stay sort of intensely horrible for very long. But you're on HRT now. Yes, it's very much so. Well, luckily, living in in Kentish Town uh, with Debbie, one of my neighbours is a woman called Kate Muir. Been on the podcast. podcast, So Kate Muir is an absolute hero. Debbie and I were walking back from a from a cafe, there'd been an, 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 an opening night at Sam's Cafe, in fact. 
uh, there'd been an opening night for some art and we'd all been and we were walking back and thank goodness Debbie said to Kate HRT came up I don't know how it came up but it did on the walk on the sort of 15 minute walk home and Debbie said oh do you think estrogen would help my lodger stop pissing herself (laughs) Kate said yeah he might well do (laughs) and it and it has and that's good news yeah the good news is I don't I mean I'm sitting on a cushion now I've lived with this cushion for three months and it's never been washed and it hasn't needed to be washed I couldn't have said that a year ago now, you mentioned Sam, Sam's Cafe. Sam is uh, a boy that you nannied for. Is that right? And now man. Yeah, he's a man now. He's horribly old, actually, considering I was his nanny. And obviously your first book, your debut novel, which was a huge hit, Love, Lena, was about you being a nanny. Did you write that at 51 or you were about 50 when you wrote the book or published? I got the contract to publish it when I was 50 Actually, they were letters. The whole book was made up of letters that I'd written when I was 20, between 20 and 24, something like that, letters to my sister Vic, previously mentioned Vic. And yeah, I wrote these letters to her because in those days you didn't phone up. I mean, you couldn't sort of be constantly on the phone. Um, I'm not sure why. Was it money? Probably money. And also you'd have to sit in the hall. But yeah, so I wrote to her and she brilliantly kept the letters. I didn't keep her replies. I threw, I read them and put them straight in the bin. But it took um, 30 years to get them published in, in a way. I mean, it, it's such an inspiring story. It, it didn't occur to me to publish them. I mean, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know they existed until 1999 when I was pregnant with my first child and I went to see Vic, who lives in Leicestershire, and I went, pregnant me, went to Vic to go on a sort of a baby shopping trip because she was a, a health visitor. And she said, oh, come, we'll do shopping together. I, I know what you need. Don't go shopping in John Lewis in London. Come with me. So we went, we did, we bought all secondhand stuff from, I don't know whether it was a, a prison warden's wife or a prison warden or maybe a prisoner. We bought secondhand stuff from Gartree Prison in Leicester. All my baby stuff came from there, which Vic had sourced for me. But while I was there with her, she said, and she'd just moved house, you know, that month. And she said, oh, when we moved, we found this big box of your letters to me. And so we sat reading them. And even I, I'm usually, you know, I would cringe at my own writing. But even I said, oh, these are great. These are funny. Your success has been in your 50s, hasn't it? What advice have you got for women who might be thinking, because we hear this a lot, from women on our private Facebook group, I've got this thing I really want to do, but I'm 50, so there's no point. I've missed the... Yeah. What advice have you got? I have always written novels and stories and and essays and so on, since I was probably 20, maybe younger. And from time to time, I've tried to get them published. I've sent them to agents and publishers over the years and with no success. I mean, it hasn't been an obsession, but it's something I've done in the background as, as a sort of a thing that I do. When... These letters that we've just talked about were discovered and by accident, a publisher got hold of them. I won't tell that story, but just by complete accident, a publisher from Penguin was with somebody who happened to mention these letters and and that's that's how they got published. After those letters were published, it occurred to me that the difference between the letters and what I was trying to get published was that the letters were in my own authentic voice. Everything else I'd written trying to sound clever, trying to sound literary, trying to sound like Edna O'Brien, trying really hard to, to make a plot. 
uh, uh, trying to be philosophical, uh, using big words that I wouldn't normally use. The letters were literally just the ramblings of me to my sister privately, uh, to someone I knew and trusted. I didn't have to, I made no effort. It was just my voice saying, oh my God, they keep using Basil in everything. It's disgusting. So just the sort of rambling, opinionated nonsense of a young person living in a group of adults that I didn't know. So I took my essays and novels that I'd been writing over the years and I translated them into my own language. So my first novel was called Man at the Helm. So I got Mary, my editor at Penguin, said, have you got anything, any other writing you'd like us to look at? And I said, yes, I have. Give me a couple of months. I rewrote it, a novel I'd first started when I was 23 and had hawked out all over the place and the people had said, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. I then wrote it in my language, my uneducated 50-year-old voice, Leicester girl, just as me, and it was published. People liked it. So my advice is trust your own voice. Find your authenticity or something like that i'm not i'm not articulating it very well but yeah that your voice is good enough at least try it and it's easier now one of the um big themes of the new book is friendship as we mentioned we hear a lot about your friends uh, which is brilliant and obviously friendships do change as you go through life because we change you know you say something really good you said that you know, friendship, it isn't like a movie, like fantasy of always being there for each other. Um, so the reality of friendships as we age, and you have this theory called your loved or beloved theory. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah. The first part of what you've just asked, it, the friendship thing I find fascinating. I think because I've got so many siblings, I'm quite happy for someone to deliberately trap my hand in the door and then sit down and watch telly with them. That's kind of what siblings do. And I've, I've, I, there were four of us. I mean, I've got other half siblings as well, but there were four of us a year apart in this very intense family situation. And so I'm quite robust. I don't need my friends to be well behaved. I can have them completely snub me and go off with someone else and not invite me to the ABBA tribute on Falmouth Beach, Kathy Rensenbrink. And, and I still completely love them. I, I think. Our friends are flawed. And if you can't accept their flaws, then you may as well just be completely alone. In fact, I was writing a thing about friendship a year or so ago. And I wrote about my friend Stella, about how, you know, it has been very up and down. But I know at the end of the day that she's there. We've known each other since we were 21. She now lives in Scotland. I live in Falmouth. Um, You did call Stella an awful woman in in one of your... No, she's terrible. I mean, she's absolutely brilliant and my very, very best friend. But she did once kick my son Alfie in the throat. She karate kicked him because he he tickled her head with a cat toy when he was eleven, and she and she just went "Ah!" and kicked him across the room. And I and I I was very cross, but we got over it. I've been mostly a good friend, but you know, I sometimes behave badly. And I think, yeah, my piece that that I was writing, I didn't call it this in the end, but I was going to call it something like saints or psychopaths. And, you know, you just have to take it all. You have to take it all. The beloved and lover thing is something that I think I got from the writer Carson McCullers, who says that in any relationship, there will be a lover and a beloved. 
and you won't be always the lover or the beloved in every relationship, but you can't have two beloveds and or two lovers. And I quite like being the lover. I like being the one that's loving. That's me, Trish, in our, in our relationship. <laughs> so, Trish, you're the beloved. You're the beloved, Trish. Oh, yeah. am I? Do you, yeah. you like that already, look, don't you? See, look, you've literally put that on like a coat that fits. I'm going to go through every single one of my friendships now. And it can change a bit. I mean, I, I like being the lover and sometimes it changes and I become the beloved. At that point, I'm a little bit uncomfortable. Me too. I hate that feeling feels very, I feel responsible for being beloved. It's too much. How did you find the teenage years as a parent? We've got a lot of listeners going through that now and we get a lot of questions on the Facebook group about coping. My sister-in-law, Kit, said to me when I first had the kids, because they're they're two years apart, and she came to stay with us in Wadebridge. And uh, I said, and her kids were older, and I said, Kit, give me some motherly advice. And she said... You don't own them. That's yeah. Went, oh my God, don't I? I've only had them because you know I wanted to own them. And she said, No, you, you don't own them. You they won't be like you. They're not you. They are completely distinct. You are just raising them. And I took that on board. I don't know why. And my my my, my own mum couldn't offer me any advice because she'd been you know, a very unorthodox kind of mother and it had all gone a bit funny. So I said, mum, give me advice. She went, my advice is don't take advice from me. Um, But I did take that advice. And I did say to my kids over the years from time to time, I would say particularly to my daughter, I will try and control you. I will try. So you have to resist me. They've had been advising me for many years, telling me what to do and what they think. And they're not bossy or horrible, but they do say, you know, mum, oh no don't do that and and you know that's been great so very quickly they became the adult in the room with me which is my theme of never being the adult you're quite good at forgiveness though I I feel like when I read about your mum and your friends and your parenting I mean your mum it was quite an extraordinary background wasn't it she your father left of a man she was only 25 she you've talked about her alcoholism her drug dependency and all of that yeah but you're very close to her still and very close when you talk about your friends you take the whole lot so there were four of us four of us in a row and my mum was on her own and when I see photographs when of course there aren't many photographs in the 70s but we did people didn't obsessively take photographs and if you're a single mum with four kids. Who's taking the photographs, you know? So when I occasionally see a photograph of us with her in those early days, it's so shocking. She's so thin and sad and alone. Between us and the whole world, there was just her protecting us. And she was this sort of waif. And she was very alone and very sad. And it was horrible for her. I mean, as well as that, she was very funny. So she wasn't sort of moping, but, you know, she did struggle. And and nobody really wanted to be friends with divorced women, particularly young ones, and she was quite pretty. And so I think people were a bit suspicious of her. And then because she was lonely, um, she was susceptible to, you know, <laughs> ideas from uh, men. So I think she shagged a lot of blokes, and that didn't help. Lorraine is um, a bit of a big old name dropper. Massive name dropper, yeah. Like a hobby, yeah. Yeah, but your book, your diary, we had a few famous names in there. We've got, you know, we obviously mentioned Debbie, Alan Bennett, Nick Hornby, quite a few in there. 
did you have to kind of get permission from them to relay all these stories and publish your diary? I did. And um, there are lots of famous names in uh, my first book, Love Nina, as well. And that did very well. So I thought, you know, I'm going to force a few famous people into this diary. And so I did. And I think before the proof was published, because, of course, lots of people read the proofs. So you really need to get permission before that. And we did. I mean, I particularly had to get permission from Satnam Sangira, the writer, because I'd moved into his lodgings. And I talk about finally throwing away his loofah. And I thought Satnam might say, I don't want people, you know, I'm this, I'm a serious person. I don't want people thinking of my loofah. But he didn't mind. He was very game. And Debbie was game. And yeah, they were all very game. And there was was the odd little tweak. I mean, there was one person who didn't want to be seen having a cleaner. And so I had to remove a, a very funny entry about them and their cleaner. But I think the most game people are actually my female friends. Yeah. Who I'm very candid about. All their vaginas are in there. Yes, I know. <laughs> I read my mum an entry uh, some while ago and she went, oh, Nina. And the entry was, um, mum's getting terrible stabbing pains up her vagina. She's got an atrophied vagina. And mum said, oh, no, don't put my vagina in it. And I said, mum, everyone's vagina's in it. You can't be the only person not having your vagina in it. And she's such a joiner in her. She went, is Debbie in it? Is Debbie's vagina in it? And I said, yes. And the thing is, Debbie's actually isn't. So my mum's now read the proof. Well, you told me Debbie Mogok's vagina was in this. And and it's I, and now she's the only person whose vagina's not in it. And I said, I'm sorry, but I had to trick you. <laughs> lots of vaginas, lots of, lot, come on, there's lots of crazy talk. Woman crazy talk. There's Kathy Rensenbrink frantically searching for her HRT patch at breakfast in a hotel in Jersey at a literary event. That made, made the diary. And I thought, Kathy's going to say, I'm not sure I really want that in the diary, but she didn't. Most people just said, you know, go for it. But there is a funny thing, which is I started writing the diary for me. And I knew I've learned that diaries and letters from the olden days make you happy and they're very joyful and they're very they kind of make sense of the past in a in a very useful way. So as soon as I knew I was doing this crazy adventure, I started writing a diary. And a couple of months into the, the London life, I met up with my editor, Mary, and she said, oh, what's it like living at Deborah Mogarks? And of course, she'd know, she's Satnam's editor as well. So she knew about Satnam living there. She went, how is it? How is it? And I said, oh God, it's mad. I said, you know, today I was searching for sellotape to wrap a birthday present. And I, in this old drawer full of like, God, old drugs and Rizzlers and old screwdrivers, there's Deborah's OBE. And Mary <laughs> said, I hope you're writing all this down. And I said, I am. Why? And she went, well, we'll talk about it later. And then a few months later, we talked again and she said, are you still writing the diary? And I said, yes. And around that time, you know, probably six months in, she said, you know, I'd love to publish it. And then I'm halfway through the year, halfway through the diary. I had to decide, am I going to take all this stuff out about me weeing myself and HRT and people's atrophied vaginas and people wank glove or whatever it is? (laughs) You know, am I going to clean the whole thing up and just talk about being a literary lady and the gardening? 
or do I leave it in? And I thought, no, I'm just going to think of who who who's talking about this stuff. What writers? I don't think there are many people. So shall I do it? Will I ever have another boyfriend if I talk about weeing on cushions? And and I thought, if I take all that stuff out, there isn't anything. That's the truth of it. There's nothing. That's my life. So I had to, well, I decided, yeah, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to leave it in. But then I noticed a couple of times I'd go a little bit formative, like Debbie and I would say, oh, let's go out on the electric scooters or Somebody would invite me to do something. They'd say, you know, come and see this play or, you know, come swimming in the ponds. Or Lorraine would say, come in the Lido, even though it's freezing. And I think, I really don't want to. And then I think, I'll do it for the diary. There's a little bit of that. But I did try to resist being too performative. But it was was a funny thing, deciding how candid are we going to be? And are people going to mind? And they didn't. And that's how it is. It's joyous. Thank you. Can we ask about Peggy before you go? How does she feel about being probably the most famous dog in literature at the moment? She's so neurotic. She's probably horrified, to be honest. Gone into hiding. She didn't love being in London, I've got to be honest, because she's used to being off the lead, scampering around in the woods. So actually being on a lead and, and going on the bus and all that, it just... It bothered her a little bit. But the, the main thing about being in London for Peggy was she kept finding food. On the floor, yeah. Scavenging. Chicken cottage. <laughs> KFC. Ooh. Yes. So now when I walk her, she used to walk quite merrily with her head in the air looking for squirrels. Now she walks sniffing the floor like a hoover. And that's that's a big change. And actually, that's that's not that's not that great. And she will now, she just thinks there's going to be bagels and chicken at every corner. Oh, Nina, thank you so much for being so honest and coming on the podcast. I think it's so wise, a lot of what you say, and so many women will relate to it, maybe be a bit jealous of your brave new future ahead of you as well. So thank you very much for coming on Postcards. Thank you so much for having me. I've been, I've, I've loved it. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com ACAST. Well, after that rather brilliant, I would say, chat with Nina, it's time to take a deep breath, everyone, and get ready for this week's How to Win at Midlife, which is going to be all about 
boosting our immune systems and reducing our stress levels and a whole lot of other good things that can be yours through breathwork and one of your favourite things, Lorraine, cold immersion or cold therapy, as some people like to call it. Well, as you know, Trish, if there's a trend, I'm ahead of it. (laughs) I'm at the forefront of all important trends. So I've been cold water swimming or cold water immersing myself for about seven years now, and it really has changed my life. I am healthier. I rarely get a cold. I I really think it's helped with my um, immune system. And after I have a little cold dip, especially when it gets to around five or six degrees, I feel amazing for about three or four days afterwards. You've been gently dipping your little toe into the cold water, haven't you? I have to say, I never said this at the time, but that time we went swimming at Blenheim, you got into that lake and it was sheet rain. It was pouring down on us. I thought not many people would do that. Look at little Trish for all her sensitivities. Straight in you were. Well, I was pink when I hopped out of there. <laughs> pink and <laughs> I think you were in a state of shock for some days afterwards, but you did it. You did it. But I am keen on a cold swim or dip. Not quite to your level though. And you, you also got me in a pond in freezing February. Oh, I did. <laughs> yes. And the English Channel. We did, didn't we? We were in Brighton, weren't we? Yeah. Yeah. But I am a daily cold shower blast advocate. And actually, our lovely friend, Danny Binnington, who she's a yoga teacher, wellness expert and founder of the website Healthy Whole Me, as well as the host of the podcast Menopause After Cancer. She was on our show last year. It wasn't she lovely, Danny? She invited me on one of her retreat days that she does with um, this amazing guy called Will Van Zyl. Will Van Zyl. Who is a certified Wim Hof method instructor, among many other things. So I uh, took myself off to a place called Streetly, lovely hotel with a lovely sort of retreaty club thing where we did lots of yoga. We did all these Wim Hof breathing exercises. We did this thing called, I'm going to call it TRAE, T-R-E, Tension, Stress and Trauma Release, which was quite bizarre. You have to look it up. It, it sort of gets your body trembling without you even realising it. That's a whole other conversation. And it was all building up to going in an ice bath, which was amazing. And so we went in the ice bath and then we did this warm up afterwards. And I loved it. I thought it was really amazing. Did you feel great for several days afterwards? You sleep well as well that night. Really well. Really, really well. Like every night that week, I slept really well. I was like, what is going on? Well, I've done quite a bit of breath work as a, in my swimming learning, but not actual breath work. I am going to be testing some breath work actually with uh, Nadia, my favorite yoga teacher at some point. Um, we're taught a lot about breathing through our nose, not our mouth when we swim, and also a lot about regulating It's regulating your parasympathetic nervous system because when you swim, you are sort of staying alive, really, because if you swallow all the water, you're going to drown. So I've done quite a few lessons around that. But um, there's a lot to know about breathing. And we do know that diaphragmatic, which sounds like something from Harry Potter, actually breathing, that kind of breathing helps expand the lungs and increases efficiency in oxygen absorption, which is really important. It strengthens the muscles of the chest, improves digestion and sleep, as we've said, and strengthens the immune system because it reduces your levels of stress. Now, you are a fan of breathwork, Trish, because our listeners may remember that last year you did the forest bathing and something called Conscious Connected Breathing with breathwork coach Justine Clements. Uh, you had a bit of an out-of-body experience, didn't you? I did. And if you want to, uh, if anyone wants to find out more about what happened to you, we'll leave it as a tease because <laughs> it is yes. pretty, it's, it's spooky. 
Really spooky what happens. Uh, that was in an episode with Katie Brand as our guest, and that was on the 19th of June, 2022. Anyway, tell me about the old Wim Hof, because obviously I'm a bit of a Wim Hof aficionado, him and his funny yes. tunics that he wears and that bearded breathing. Everyone's probably heard of Wim Hof, haven't they? And it was a really good TV show, celebrity TV show last year, wasn't there, with lots of celebrities doing his his method. And he's all about sort of breathing technique, cold immersion, and then this sort of commitment to making this part of your sort of, uh, you know, regular daily life or weekly life. And his breathing technique, I mean, it's not rocket science, but you do, I think you do need to be guided through it by an expert. And there's lots of apps and um, uh, videos on YouTube. It can release quite big feelings. Well, we were doing it after we did it, like this massive, big, burly gym instructor guy who was on the retreat with us. He was sobbing, women were sobbing. It was it was quite amazing, actually. So what you have to do is you take a strong inhalation through the nose down into your belly and you have your hands on your belly so you can really feel that you're doing that proper sort of expansion into the belly. And then you let it go completely through the mouth, sort of like, like that. And uh, you repeat that for 30 breaths, they count you through it. And then on the 30th breath, you uh, exhale to 90% and then you hold it for a kind of prescribed amount of time that your instructor will suggest, sort of you do it incrementally. So you'll do one round and you'll hold it for 45 seconds. The next round, you'll hold it for 60. The third uh, might be 90 seconds, kind of depending on how experienced everybody is. And it really does sort of take you out of yourself. It's very meditative. You kind of zone out and you're kind of like when you're holding this breath, you know, you can you can feel a little bit panicky towards the bit when you think, oh, you know, I need to breathe and you, you don't want to be gasping. They kind of talk you through about this, like, okay, if you are going to feel like that, just, you know, relax. But they sort of say your body has all the oxygen it needs right now. And that is a really powerful sort of mental statement for sort of getting you to hold this breath, which is um, really, really good. Loves your brain with oxygen as well, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. It needs it. It's quite an amazing thing. I think it's interesting that the reason people need to breathe through their nose is because it warms and humidifies the air before it gets to your lungs. And it also filters out the incoming air so it removes any irritants. Um, and in general, especially at sleeping, better for you to breathe in and out through your nose because everyone's doing that mouth taping at the moment, aren't they? Where they're oh, just yes. breathing. Breathing exercises, Pilates as well, yoga can get you, and swimming, front crawl swimming can get you to breathe in through the nose and out through the mouth. And the reason for that is a forceful exhalation better enables you to engage with uh, full 360 degrees with your abdominal muscles. So I guess by practicing these breathing techniques ahead of getting into very cold water, you're calming your nervous system, aren't you? Go on then, what happens? You like getting into a gin and tonic, Trish. Is that what they told you? That would have got you in like within seconds. You wouldn't have had to calm down then. They did the bath thing outside, not surprisingly. They had three of them there um, to sort of, you know, so everybody could do it, you know, get through the, there was about 40 of us there. And it was on this beautiful lawn on the river and uh, this hotel. Um, and it was, uh, they kind of, we did all this breathing beforehand. We were in our swimmies. Uh, we did this breathing beforehand. And when I was, when it was my turn, I was sort of standing, you get you to stand, you know, behind the bath and he instructs you that, you take a deep inhale as you step into the bath, 
uh, and a slow exhale as you sit down. So you do it in this very precise movement. But I was so calm, so calm from all my breathing. But when I was standing in front of the heart bath, my heart was literally going like the clappers. I was like, oh my God, I can't, what if I can't do it right? Anyway, but he just talks you through it. And I got in and I sat down and it was, I thought it was absolutely fine. It's a bit of a shock, but he just kind of looks at you, gets you to focus your breathing. And, you know, you focus on the in-breath through your nose, you relax on the out-breath through your mouth. And um, it went by really quickly. So I found it absolutely okay. The weird thing for me was my triceps were burning. Yeah, bits of your body burn, don't they? Bits of your body burn. And they were saying afterwards, actually, a lot of it is um, if you have like a bad ankle or a bad hip, that is the bit that will probably you'll really, really, really feel it. But then it will, because it's targeting that area. It was pretty super, I have to say. You liked it, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, you probably should have put one of my little dry robes on, one of my many dry robes that I like to... You've got a lot of dry robes, yes. <laughs> ...bring out when I'm out and about. I tell you what is happening as well is it's that fight or flight cold water shock. Um, there's a lot of research still being done on cold water. And I think it's, you know, it's important that we know we don't know that much about it because most of the stuff at the moment is self-reported. There's trials happening. I think Portsmouth and Oxford are doing their the big trials into it at the moment. But what we learn when we're cold water swimming is, A, how dangerous it is. <laughs> B, that wherever you go in, you've got to be sure you can get out if you're not feeling 100%. So always check your exit more than your intro um, when it comes to doing this kind of thing in a lake. Don't stay in very long the first time. I have friends who, who just jump in, which is the worst possible way to do it. Um, and that's against all advice of so getting your hands cold first and gradually going in is the best thing. But you do have to get yourself into that mental zone of cold water. And it sounds very easy talking about it, but actually standing in front of it, you'd have to place yourself there. There is something as well, which I think isn't mentioned much after cold water immersion, is something called the after drop, which um, is being studied. And actually a friend of mine, Simon Griffiths, who edits Outdoor Swimmer, is part of a trial on this. Your temperature continues dropping when you come out. So if you don't know that's going to happen, it's quite scary. Um, so I always think people should be aware that what you might do is feel a lot colder about half an hour later and you might um, shiver, which uses up quite a lot of energy. But I would look at anything Simon Griffiths is writing on this, if you're thinking about cold water immersion with swimming, and anything Greg White, who is the amazing, amazing athlete who trains all the comic relief athletes. He trained Davina for her cold water swim. But Greg's been involved in all the cold water immersion studies. So Google him just because it really, I can't say this enough, it affects everybody very, very differently. Everyone has a very different reaction to cold water immersion. And I think to think that we'll all feel great afterwards is, is A, not true. <laughs> and B, it's a, you just really do have to be incredibly careful. Um, but, the, you know, all the studies so far, the self-reported studies show it helps with anxiety. It does give you this flood of serotonin afterwards so you can feel great. And also not to, to bear in mind the community because you say you felt safe and supported. So that's a lovely experience and that is a huge immune boost as well, isn't it? To your point about what happens afterwards, that, you know, it was we were shown how to warm up straight afterwards because, you know, you were thinking, oh my God, I'm going to have to get my towel, I'm going to have to jump out and rub myself and all of that. And Will explained why that's exactly the wrong thing to do because of the way it affects your circulation and where it sends, you know, it basically, if you start rubbing your legs, it sends the blood into your legs away from your organs and you really need to be able to warm up your torso and everything. So I'm going to, shall I tell you how you do it? I was quite, um, quite impressed with this. I put my hat on. 
That's my first because oh, yeah. I get so, my head gets so cold. Oh, well, he, so what we had to do was you stand in, you know, like a horse pose in yoga, which is basically a sort of semi-squat. So you've got your legs apart and you're in a squat and your torso is upright. And then you start twisting your torso from left to right. So you've got your, your legs, all your leg muscles are engaged. Okay. They're all firing up. So they're creating heat. They're the heaviest muscles in your body, aren't they? Yeah. They're creating heat by standing in that horse pose. Then you're doing this sort of twisting and then you start kind of pushing your arms out as you twist, almost like a sort of like you're pushing in the opposite direction. And you have to do that for two minutes for every minute that you were in the cold bath. So to do it for four minutes. It's amazing. I was literally just walking around in my swimsuit. You warm up the big muscles first and that's the yes. legs are the biggest muscle in the body. And yeah, then it, exactly. Yeah. And it's just remarkable. I just feel like sometimes, you know, what your body can do without, you do, we don't know these things, but it's amazing what your body can do. So that was very good. What you shouldn't do is get into a hot shower. That's the thing that you absolutely mustn't do after a cold water swim. Uh, just FYI, everybody, everyone must have been looking at all those Midlife ladies in the garden there. It was quite funny because the hotel, there was a sort of, we were in a sort of bit that was sort of hedged off, but people could see over the hedge. They were having a right old corp, <laughs> which I'm not surprised. It did look a bit mad. The issue is that we're often taught that being in the cold, you know, we all say wrap up warm, it is actually bad yeah. for us. And it, it, it really isn't. Being cold is not a problematic state to be in. I mean, being colder is thought to optimize your immune system, reduce inflammation, boost energy and mental well-being. Give you endorphins, you get, you do get. I mean, I, you talk to many cold water swimmers, they would talk of this u- amazing euphoria that lasts through the day. Oh, yeah, as a kite, you should. You do, yeah. you do. It's like ultra runners when they get in the zone. It's a similar feeling. Not, not for everyone, but for most people I've talked to. It's also believed that it, um, believed to condition the microvasculature, uh, in your, so the little blood cells in your extremities, which is very good for your circulation, your heart. Uh, it may help with the build-up of brown adipose tissue, so brown fat. This is such a talking point amongst cold water swimmers because some people say it does. Some people say there's no research to absolutely prove this. It's just you know what people are telling researchers. But building up that fat, and there's a lot of research being done at the moment, may help towards preventing dementia. So there is some really good research going into it at the moment. So Fat in your body works in different ways. White fat is the normal fat that we all have, that we accumulate, that we they worry about. But brown fat um, is iron rich in mitochondria. I actually feel it on the back of my neck. There's a lot of brown fat on the back of your neck it's where babies have brown fat, why they feel the cold less when, when you put them in, in the water. So I feel that really burning when I get into cold water. But some people say it doesn't affect brown fat at all. So it's worth looking at the research on it because brown fat can be quite a good thing to have in the body. Yes. The other chilly thing, we'll just touch on this briefly, that we, we've both actually tried is this whole body cryotherapy. Uh, and basically that, ter- that term, it just encompasses sort of using cold temperatures to therapeutic effects in all sorts of different ways. So if you think about it, you know, if you pull a muscle or a tender, if you put an ice pack, or bruise or something, you put an ice pack on it because that's the kind of cooling targeted way uh, – Verrucas and warts, our little children have those frozen off. Um, so when you think about it like that, this whole kind of cold impact on the body. And, um, uh, and it can also be used more generally uh, on the whole body for things like skin conditions, even cancer. Yes, yes. You put your gloves on, you put your little feet on, you put your hat on and you get in a chamber the size of you, which is oddly for me, slightly bigger than me, obviously, because I'm only five foot two. So I disappeared into my uh, little chamber. 
you can go into temperatures minus 85 to minus 185 and you stay in there. You have a little chat about your health and then you stay in for the amount of time that it's supposed to work. I have to say I felt nothing as a result of it. I wonder if my immune, my cold water resist tolerance is, yeah. is too high for cryotherapy to be useful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, there is a lot of research going into that as well because... The other thing you have to be careful of, if you have autoimmune diseases like arthritis, things like that, you don't know which way it's going to go. Could be good, could be really bad. So you need to really check that out as well. So I don't think cryotherapy affected me, but I only had one session. Obviously, you have to have quite a lot for to work, but people do swear by it, don't they? Yeah, and it's, it can be quite expensive. I think it's about £90 for a session, but I think an introductory one would be about £45. And then if you do like it, you can book a multi sort of sessions. It weirdly doesn't feel cold, is the... No, no. Well, it might not be for you because you're so experienced. But, you know, for anybody who's a new, total newbie to this whole cold thing and wants to have a little bit of a go, it's the daily cold shower, isn't it? It I is. I think that's yeah, what Will, love a cold Will Van Zyl recommends. He says the way to do it is try and think about doing it over... Uh, five days. And, you know, the first day, it's about really like focusing on your breathing while you're having your warm shower. Do your breathing in and out as you reduce the hot water by half and then stay in it for 30 seconds. Keep breathing sort of easily, slowly. Day two, you build that up. You reduce the hot water again and stay in for an extra 15 seconds, et cetera, et cetera, until you get up to a minute. And then by day five, you should be on the coldest temperature setting on your shower. Yeah, and I think remember to breathe. Yeah, exactly. I love it. Very good for your skin and it's very good for your scalp as well, whether it's cold water or not, that that cold water is really good. And we should point out that if you have any serious medical conditions, you must check with your GP um, or any psychological conditions before you attempt any of the breathing techniques or any of the cold stuff. It's super serious that you do check because I have seen cold water swimmers collapse in showers. I have seen them collapse beside lakes. I've seen people trying it for the first time come out and have to be wrapped in hypothermia blankets. So it's amazing. So many people swear by it, but really do take it very, very slowly. And there is that point when you're in cold water, when you feel amazing and you think, this is great, I can stay in it. That's the point you come out. So please, please check on that. So this should, you know, the daily cold shower, getting used to cold should help boost your immune system ahead of uh, winter. But just as a quick overview, you won't be surprised to learn, Lorraine, that the other good things for your immune system, can you take a guess? Everything in life comes down to the golden rules, exercise, healthy diet, not smoking, not too much alcohol, getting outdoors. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, and I think in winter, the one uh, vitamin that you really, really must take is vitamin D. So I think that's quite uh, well known. But if you haven't got any in your cupboard, now is the time to stock up. So I think we're all set for a healthy winter. And uh, come next spring, I'll be giving you a run for your money, Lorraine, with your cold water dipping. You can try, Trish. <laughs> um, and if you are doing it for the first time, could you share some pictures on the Facebook group? For yes. Us? That would be really lovely. We'd like to hear everyone else's journeys um, so that we can spread the word of all good things to all the good woman listeners here. If you'd like to get in touch with Lorraine and I, there are plenty of ways that you can do it. Why not send us an email at hello at postcardsfrommidlife.com or direct message us at postcardsfrommidlife on Instagram. We always enjoy hearing from you, our lovely listeners, and we'll respond to as many of your queries as we can. And you can also join us on our private Facebook
Facebook group, which is a forum for women to discuss the issues that affect us as we navigate this midlife. All you have to do to join is answer three of young Trisha's questions to gain access to the group, where you'll find information and friendly support to help you make the most of your second act. Ba, ba, ba. Ba, ba. Oh, we need a theme tune, don't we, for Nostalgia Noodle, for anyone who makes it all the way through this bit of the show. So I have to bring to you a Nostalgia Noodle right back. Let's go 90s. Let's go to the most 90s thing I have ever seen. Surprisingly, something I wouldn't normally watch. Yeah. Beckham. I know. The Netflix documentary, the 7,000-hour Netflix documentary, which I sat down to watch and thought, I'm really not going to enjoy this because I'm not that interested in football or them, etc., etc. Crying my eyes out after 10 minutes and also swept along by the nostalgia of the 90s. It must be like what our parents thought when they were looking at things from the 50s and 60s. Yeah. Yeah, it was so that decade was so formative, wasn't it, for our Gen X generation. But um, what made you cry? I didn't, I mean, I really enjoyed that first episode. The World Cup, the 96 World Cup. I just thought the horror, it made me cry because it. I felt a sort of slight relief in that he went through that horrific shaming, which was, brutal and no one there to support him or her through any of that. And all that dreadful stuff women went through at the time with the way crimes were reported, all the things we were called in the press and how we were body shamed. I just felt very sad about the whole time, but I did feel particularly sad for a very young boy, I guess because I've got a son um, whose life is football really as well. Yeah. You know, for a very young boy to go through that, I feel that that made me cry, Trish. Yeah. Oh, but I enjoyed the football bits. I'm not you do like a bit of football. Well, I did back in the, uh, in the 80s, a bit of Tottenham Hotspur, but I wasn't, but I kind of remembered a lot of it. I was like, oh my God, I do remember all of that. And the best one was those awful brown suits they had to wear. <laughs> Beige brown suit, poo coloured. Poo coloured suits. And the um, Spice Girls, that was amazing to see. All the Spice Girls, as they originally were, it was. I guess what it summed up for us, and and if you if you don't like football and you're not interested in Spice Girl music or anything, you should still watch it if you're yeah. a Gen X because it really does sum up the moments of the time and what was influencing us and what we were seeing. And that kind of those dreadful. They were so young, the Spice Girls, and they're wearing all those awful skin tight clothes, and that thought that you know being like boys was the Feminism, you know, the second wave of feminism. It was just, it really did yeah. pinpoint a moment in time really, really well. And obviously narrated by Hugo from Succession. <laughs> yes. Lots of Succession-y type music too. I like that. And as usual, we've got to the end of the show and our producer has had to remind us we need <laughs> to say goodbye. <laughs> the incompetentpodcasts.com. Anyway, Trip, shall we say goodbye? We shall. And we'll say thank you for listening. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.